If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. For the most part, we all understand the, the value of developing a vaccine uh, for COVID-19 and recognizing, too, that that's not going to happen overnight, uh, that it typically can take years to develop a new vaccine. And obviously, when it comes to a situation like this, we can't really afford to wait years. There, there are steps we can take in the meantime to try to get on with life uh, while dealing with this virus. But it's probably going to take a vaccine, an effective vaccine, to get us back to kind of the normal that we knew pre-pandemic. So how do we ensure that not only we get that vaccine, but we try to do it as quickly as possible? And there are various ways to expedite this process without cutting corners. Obviously, when it comes to a vaccine, it's crucial, crucial, not just that it be effective, but that it be safe. And so as you're developing and testing a vaccine, you gotta answer those two questions. And that's why it can take some time. Now, so far initially, things have moved pretty quickly. And there are already vaccines that are into phase one and even phase two testing. Uh, And, you know, some pretty encouraging signs, at least in terms of early data. So that's a positive. We've still got the timeline challenge here. Uh, One group, though, is um, trying to find a, a unique way of expediting this. Recruiting volunteers to not just be uh, candidates in clinical trials, but to actually be willing to test the efficacy of vaccines by deliberately exposing themselves to the virus. That's certainly a way to tell whether a vaccine works. There's some risk involved, obviously, then, if that vaccine doesn't. Now, the effort's being led by a group called One Day Sooner. You can read more on the web at onedaysooner.org. That's the number one, onedaysooner.org. Joining us on the line is uh, Josh Morrison. He is co-founder of One Day Sooner, also happens to be uh, executive director uh, of the group Waitlist Zero. Josh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate being on. Now, first of all, I understand, Alaska, what, you got about 1,500 people who've signed up for this. Is that right? Uh, we're actually at 2,500. Uh, 2,500 now. It's now? really wow. increased uh, quite rapidly. We've had several hundred people sign up uh, today alone. Wow. Okay, so let's take a step back and tell us a bit more about you know where the idea comes from and, and tell us a bit more about this approach. Mm-hmm. So I learned about this um, by reading an article that ended up being published in the Journal of Infectious Disease um, by three authors, uh, Nir Eyal, who's a philosopher and bioethicist at Rutgers, uh, Mark Lipsitch, who's an epidemiologist at um, Harvard, and then Peter Smith, uh, who um, is at the Imperial College. Or, I'm sorry, he's at the um, he's somewhere in, in London. I don't know the universities in England very well. Um, but so what their idea was, uh, they talked about this, this challenge trial that yeah. what you could do is you could speed up the development of a vaccine by instead of waiting for people passively to be infected, um, which is you know something that typically involves these phase three trials of maybe as many as 10,000 or more people. And, you know, in the best case scenario, it might take six months, but, but can, can actually take, take years. What you can do is if you uh, 
come up with kind of what's called a minimum infectious dose so that you uh, have a dose of the virus that will reliably infect 70 to 80 percent of people who might take it from like a, a nasal spray or an aerosol. Um, and that way you can test the vaccine under very controlled conditions, observing things very quickly and learn data in you know, a month or two that you would need to, to wait a lot longer to get otherwise. And the, their idea was that you can replace this six-month-plus phase three in 10,000 people with a you know, one- to two-month challenge trial in about 100 people. Um, so that's how I first started learning about it. And when I, when I heard about it, um, a friend had mentioned it to me, and it seemed, you know, I, I thought about it for a bit. I think pretty immediately it seemed like a, a good idea because just, just how critical getting a vaccine is and how, you know, every day is worth thousands and possibly tens of thousands of lives. And when you look at the risk of coronavirus to the young, healthy people who would be participating in this trial, you know, that risk is significant. No one is claiming that it's not a risky decision or, or you know, that it's something anyone should take lightly. But, you know, that risk compared to the possibility of saving weeks or even months on a vaccine, that to me seemed like it was something that made sense. And then when I thought about it personally, would I want to do this? To me, it seemed like the answer was yes, and it kind of fit with the past kidney work I'd been doing. And so I decided to try to organize other people who might be interested in this. Now, I'm curious then, I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly some logic to the approach, and there's some ethical issues around it we can get into, but who ultimately makes the decision? Is it, is it if a company gets mm-hmm. to phase three trials, do they make the decision? Do regulators need to sign off on this? How, how would this work? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think there's kind of three main groups um, that are kind of involved in, in these decisions. So the first um, and kind of the most important in a way are the vaccine manufacturers themselves, because they're the ones who ultimately run the, the process. And it's the, the regulator. So well, the other, so that's number one. They have to be interested in using, in using this. Uh, then number two, uh, where they would conduct this study at a university or with a university partner, the Institutional Review Board, or IRB, um, that ethically approves or disallows uh, studies on, on human subjects, they would also need to say yes. And then finally, the FDA or, or some other regulatory body um, in the U.S. or England or EU or Canada or anywhere else would need to, to also approve certain pieces of this. So, for example, uh, in the U.S., the virus would be considered a, a, a drug, essentially, and that would need to be approved by the FDA. Or, you know, to let's say that you use this to help give data that would say, okay, well, you know, we don't have the phase three done, so we're not, we don't, we can't quite license it yet to be used by everyone, but it's ready for emergency use by healthcare workers or the elderly or something like that. Um, That would be FDA approved in the U.S. And then there's finally the licensure decision of, you know, would this be used by everyone? And, you know, the the near IL um, Mark Lipsitz paper said, that we could actually, you know, possibly use this for licensure, that I think might be a bit ambitious, um, but it would definitely matter for the other pieces. So there's kind of those three different uh, groups that kind of in some ways have to turn their keys, the manufacturers, the institutional review boards, and the regulators. Now, I think, you know, I mean, when it comes to any clinical trial, we're, we're talking about something that hasn't yet been approved. So there, there, I suppose mm-hmm. there are always ethical questions when it comes to mm-hmm. involving humans in clinical trials. So. This seems to go a little bit further, though. What, what do you see as the potential, you know, questions around this approach? Well, I think what's so, – so one thing I should say, the idea of challenge trials, of, of um, deliberately exposing people to infection uh, to either learn about the infection or test uh, treatments or vaccines, that's, you know, fairly well established. 
And so, for example, it's been used in uh, malaria, dengue fever, cholera, typhoid, and for the flu. And actually, the malaria vaccine uh, that's being deployed now in three countries in Africa was developed in part using challenge trials. And the cholera vaccine um, that's used for travelers in the U.S. and I believe Canada called Vaxcora was also used in challenge trials. So even though it sounds a little bit outlandish, um, it's actually been used before. And actually, the very first vaccine um, for smallpox also involved um, using essentially a challenge trial where uh, an eight-year-old boy um, was given the potential vaccine, which ended up working, and then was actually deliberately exposed to, to smallpox. And that kind of shows something about this, that, you know, on the one hand, uh, eradicating smallpox and a vaccine for smallpox is one of humanity's greatest achievements. Yeah. On the other hand, obviously, we wouldn't be ethically comfortable with, um, uh, you know, exposing an eight-year-old child to, to smallpox now. Um, and so I think in this particular case, what separates uh, COVID-19 and challenge trials in COVID-19 from those other things I've mentioned is that it's a potentially deadly disease, even among young and healthy people, uh, that doesn't currently have a medical treatment. Now, we hope that there'll be approved drug treatment by the time challenge trials could take place, but we don't know that, and we're not going forward on the assumption that they're only going to be valuable if there is a medical treatment. And so I think that idea of you know, giving someone an illness, an illness that could be deadly, uh, but without having that medical treatment, that's what makes separates this uh, from other cases. And that's what, you know, raises real, real important questions about it. So the people who are signing up, and, and obviously this would have to be, mm -hmm. you know, informed consent, that people know what they're mm -hmm. getting into. Um, mm -hmm. So what, what, how do you present it to people who are signing up? What, what is it they're signing up for? Yep. Um, and so we try to be very clear, you know, it's, it's yeah, obviously, you know, no one should, should kind of start getting into this for the wrong reasons. And so if you look at our site, you know, both the, the front page, but also the form that people have to fill out in order to, to register their interest, um, you know, it's very clear about what the, the risks, you know, that, that the, the risks to some extent are unknown because there's a lot of data coming in uh, about COVID-19. But we, we try to be pretty clear about what the risks are. And we're also clear about, you know, the, the idea that, that this is just a first stage. This is just an initial expression of interest. And there's several other stages that people have to go through before it's kind of officially enrolling in a, in a trial. Um, I think, you know, longer term in terms of informed consent, what we're going to want to make sure of is first, yeah, that people understand the risks very thoroughly. Um, and that they're, you know, we, I think we want to make sure that the people are, are going to be, you know, not just informed, you know, just told that these are the risks. But, but able to, to explain that back and able to make a calculation of what they think the benefit is going to be versus, versus the risk um, is, is one thing we want to make sure of. But given the fact that, you know, so many people have, have willingly signed up for this already, uh, what, what does it mm -hmm. tell you, you think, about, you know, kind of our, our collective interest in, in wanting to find mm -hmm. solutions here? What, what do you make of it? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, I, I can, it's, firstly, it's incredibly inspiring. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, uh, I've told people, you know, one of the things that's really cool about doing this work is I get to see the, the kind of anonymized reasons of people who volunteer and, and why they say they volunteer. And those are really, really moving. And I think there's, you know, a few different things. I know for, for me personally, you know, I think that, you know, obviously there's a desire to, to do good and, and a feeling, you know, for me personally of, uh, that I've had a, a fairly lucky and, and privileged life and I should give back in some ways. But I think, um, you know, it's also just a matter of, of wanting to feel some sense of agency and control and being able to, to accomplish something con uh, constructive in a context that's very scary and, and depressing. You know, I think that was something that really made a difference for me. I live in Brooklyn, 
um, which is kind of the epicenter or in New York City, the epicenter of the uh, pandemic in the U.S. And, you know, I remember before starting work on this feeling really depressed and, and really scared. Um, and then, you know, starting doing, you know, doing this, I felt a lot more empowered and a lot more, more agency. And I think the other thing that people often mention, um, and, you know, again, there's no one volunteer. People have all sorts of different ideas. Um, one thing people, people often mention is, you know, vulnerable family members or people in their lives that they, you know, in some way want to do something to protect, even understanding, obviously, that it's not necessarily directly protecting, you know, that person in that moment. But that's also a motivation I think, I think people, people have a lot of. Uh, and by the way, just as I mentioned at the outset, um, you know, we're, we're seeing some encouraging signs already when it comes to, to vaccine development and, and some potential candidates getting into phase one and even phase two trials. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people working on these. There, there's, there's a lot of progress being made. How encouraged are you by what you're seeing so far on that front? So, you know, it's funny. The, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, I actually don't have a back, background uh, with vaccines until I started getting involved this, with this uh, a month ago. So to me, you know, mm-hmm. I'll say first, you know, I'm not an expert on on um, vaccine development. I think, right. you know, from what I have learned, it is a long and difficult process with with many stops and starts and many things that are encouraging and then and then look worse. You know, I definitely, like anyone, have been excited to see um, some of the news at you know with companies like Moderna and Inovio and the, these RNA based vaccines. And I think it's been incredible they've been able to come up with candidates so quickly, and also some of the Chinese uh, um, uh, ideas like uh, CanSino, the, the people in Oxford um, are sounding very confident of their ability to get something that into this kind of phase three efficacy testing by the fall. Um, so that, that all sounds good, and there are, I think, 73 different vaccine candidates. Um, but I think that's positive. I, I do think – oh, go ahead. Um, sorry, that I heard. Uh, so I, um, yeah, so that's all positive. You know, I think though that we don't want to get our hopes up too much, or we don't want to mm-hmm. assume that, for example, this first wave of candidates is is going to work. I think that there's, you know, there's early grounds to to be hopeful, but we need to be prepared for all the possible scenarios. And the reality is, creating a vaccine is a very, very difficult problem. Um, and we, you know, it's, it's a very complicated and, and hard to understand medical field, especially for people um, who are not, you know, experts in it, like myself. Um, so I think we, we want to be hopeful, but be prepared and recognize this is going to take a while. And, and we shouldn't be disheartened if some of the initial promise that, you know, promising out, uh, developments don't turn out exactly as well as we'd want. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Uh, again, people can read more about this initiative. It's uh, one uh, day sooner dot org. And um, now is, is it just Americans that are, are signing up right now? Not at all. Um, it's people all over the world. We've had okay. volunteers from, uh, I think, 52 countries, last I checked. Um, and Canada is certainly well represented. Uh, and actually, just this morning, I think there was some news um, in South America because most of our volunteers uh, this morning were actually from all over countries in, in Latin America and South America, which hadn't been the case before. So it's definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm based in the U.S. A lot of our, our uh, people running the organization are based in the U.S., but as, as we want to be uh, involving volunteers from everywhere, and as we, we grow, we're hoping to have, um, you know, be more of a global presence, um, both from a volunteer perspective and from an organizing perspective. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Josh, really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Uh, there you go. That is Josh Morrison, one of the co-founders of One Day Sooner. So 2,500 people now and counting have signed up for this, the idea of what they call human challenge trials. 
uh, really speed up that phase three. Okay, we got a vaccine, looks promising. We want to see how it works. That's one way to do it. Give someone the vaccine, see if they've got immunity. If they don't, then sure, yeah, there's, there's potentially an issue there. But, you know, these people are signing up knowing that, knowing that risk. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.